This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy. Season 2, Episode 18, Remotetopia, the Post-COVID-19 Workplace. As part of our ongoing discussion of restarting the U.S. economy, today's podcast will focus on the workplace that awaits us as we move away from the shelter-in-place orders of the last two and a half months and return to work. Several weeks ago, we discussed Work.com, which is a suite of software developed by Salesforce.com specifically to guide corporate America to manage the return to the workplace in the COVID-19 pandemic. But what about the office space itself? How will that space differ from what we left last mid-March, 10, 12 weeks ago? Some argue that the pandemic is an inflection point in the way that we work and that it will radically change the fundamentals of our work and our society and how we live. Others say that corporate America will adapt to changed circumstances as we did after 9-11 and that the changes will not be as far-reaching as some would suggest. Either way, it's certainly a very different landscape, and it starts with working from home. Before the pandemic, the Bureau of Labor Statistics estimated that 8% of U.S. employees worked from home full-time, and 19% worked from home part-time. However, 73% of the workforce left home for the office, the factory, the warehouse, or the store, Monday through Friday, 7 o'clock in the morning, and returned home at 6 o'clock. The shelter-in-place orders of March turned those statistics on their head, with the non-essential workforce, which could work from home, 62% actually, according to Gallup.com. That was almost double what it had been in March. But those working from home, Gallup found that about 41% would prefer to return to the traditional workplace. Yet, almost 60% of those who were working from home during the shelter in place preferred working remotely and wanted to continue working remotely once the public health restrictions are lifted. So how will corporate America manage such expectations in the future? And what impact will their changing working practices have on the commercial real estate markets in major American cities? We have never had anything like this before. We have never had a very significant part of the American labor force working from home. It also provides challenges to management and to management expertise, let alone the impact on the residential real estate market when the demand for home office space, computer systems, and connectivity comes online. So even the residential real estate market is going to be significantly impacted if we shift 
a large part of our workforce to staying at home and working from home. Both Cushman Whitefield, the commercial real estate brokerage, and Cognizant Technology Solutions are addressing the issue. Cushman, with the Six Feet Office Project, and Cognizant with a study entitled After the Virus. Cushman has developed guidelines for companies globally to get their employees back to the office. Most recently, they've been working in China to get the Chinese corporate world back into the office. They estimate that they have worked with up to 10,000 Chinese corporate customers to get them back into work after the close down of the Chinese economy. Further, they estimate that they have moved almost 1 million workers in China back into the workplace. So Cushman started with a pilot project in their Dutch office in Amsterdam. And in that pilot project, they developed guidelines to get people back in the workplace, and they relied on collaboration with health organizations, medical advisors, psychologists, safety officials, and other government officials. The project is called the Six Feet Office. To give you an example, they've used large circles and other visual cues on the floor, similar to hospitals, to ensure a separation of six feet between employees at all times and to remind employees at all times that they must remain six feet distance. New designs also call for traffic flows in one direction, in corridors and passageways to avoid pinch points where people may collide and essentially not comply with the six feet social distancing. Shared kitchens and lunchrooms are being redesigned. And we can all remember in our corporate kitchens some of the science projects that we've seen in refrigerators of leftovers or, or other food that uh, colleagues had left to fester and foam in the corporate kitchen, the corporate refrigerator. That will be a thing of the past. Additionally, something as simple as paper desk coverings being changed daily will ensure that the actual desktop is clean and fresh and sanitized every day that the worker comes in and sits down at his or her office desk. However, elevators and elevator banks remain a choke, a choke, choke point and may require new management techniques to reduce overcrowding. We have all experienced being crammed into elevators like sardines and waiting the 30, 60, 90 seconds, 120 seconds for that crowded elevator to whisk us to the 20th or the 40th or the 60th floor. That remains to be a problem to be solved. 
And some of the solutions that are being discussed at this point are metered use of elevators, uh, elevators which will not move if there are more than three or four or five people in the elevator, and even to a point where reservations for entry time and exit time to get on an elevator may be required, particularly in the morning rush hour and in the evening rush hour. This is where staggered work hours could really help with the flow of workers coming into the office and leaving the office to ensure that there is not an almighty crush and rush for the elevator at between 8.30 and 9 o'clock, and then essentially uh, empty elevators for many hours thereafter. Work.com, the suite of software programs developed by Salesforce, is being adopted throughout corporate America. It's one of the few programs which was specifically tailored for managers to manage their workforce who are returning to the office in COVID-19. So kudos to Salesforce for having the foresight and ingenuity for developing that set of uh, software programs. Additionally, Salesforce has had a bit of a head start in, uh, in this business in that they have been working to get their Chinese and Korean and Japanese offices back online, uh, which of course uh, those offices in those Asian countries have opened much earlier than the offices here in the United States. So Salesforce had a bit of a leg up in that respect and corporate America will be benefiting from the programs that Salesforce put together for its Asian businesses. Cognizance Center for the Future of Work has prepared a special report entitled After the Virus. And I discussed it at length this morning with Vice President Rob H. Brown. The report propels us five years into the future. So the report assumes that we're now in 2025. And then it takes a backward look from 2025 back to 2020, 21, 22, 23, and looks at what we got right in reopening our offices after the COVID-19 pandemic, what we got wrong, and where we can make some improvements. Further, the report documents where the workplace changed, how it changed, and how it adapted to the challenges that were brought about by the COVID-19 pandemic. In summary, the report posits the fundamental change will have occurred throughout every aspect of our lives. Our political life, socioeconomic assumptions will have changed, our business models, our work models, our work practices, as well as life in general, will have radically changed, according to this report after the virus. Education, health, shopping, and entertainment will have become more virtual. They were already becoming virtual before the shelter in place, 
And many of the trends that we were watching prior to the pandemic, many of those trends, particularly in the virtual field, have been accelerated and will be accelerated, particularly in the fields of education, health, shopping, and entertainment. We will see more working from home, and we'll also see much less business travel. And frankly, a lot of the business travel over the last four, five, 10 years had really become superfluous, and we will see much less business travel now that we have such technologies as Zoom and other virtual ways to connect with clients and with colleagues and with educators. The environmental agenda will gather momentum as a result of this pandemic, according to the study. At the same time, some fundamental values regarding privacy, for instance, and regarding treatment of seniors and the aging process, some of those fundamental values and assumptions that we've made as individuals in our, in our society, they will be challenged. And we're going to have to adapt, and they're going to have to adapt to these changed underlying values. The pandemic represents an epoch-making inflection point when technology and remote access became fully integrated into almost every aspect of our lives. In other words, this epoch-making inflection point established technology and remote access as an integral part of our workaday lives, our education lives, our health lives, and it took away the novelty of using technology for some of those uses and substituted technology for face-to-face -face contact. So that's a big step and one which is regarded as an epoch-making inflection point. It's also an eye-opening view of both the opportunities and the challenges that the pandemic has presented to mankind. And as I said, many trends that were at an incipient stage before the pandemic have now been accelerated and those trends have now become uh, accepted practices and embedded practices. So again, the, the study is called After the Virus. It is prepared by Cognizance Center for the Future of Work. I commend it to your attention. Well worth a read. The coronavirus and COVID-19 is a health emergency, which has made all of us more aware of our own health, our ability to monitor our health, and to manage it. The concept of managing our own health through technology is on the increase. And with the advent of wearable technology, such as Fitbit, the Apple Watch, Quartio, among, among other applications, there are only just those three that I cite, but there are many others, all of them offer the consumer an easy-to-use, wearable device that help to track ongoing conditions and serve as early warning systems 
for blood pressure problems, temperature problems, um, cardiac problems. This technology for something as simple as an electric thermometer is, uh, has been key in the monitoring and tracking and tracing of COVID-19 illness. Blood pressure machines, for instance, and many EKG devices have also proved to be very important during this shelter in place as we were not able to go to the doctor or go to another medical professional to, met, to get a routine EKG or blood pressure measurement. Temperature taking has now become a routine public exercise, and we're seeing both entering stores and restaurants, the few that are open, uh, and eventually restaurants, we're seeing that temperature guns are actually raised by the maitre d' or the manager of the office to the customer's uh, forehead, to their temple, and very quickly the gun will register if the temperature is normal or if they have a temperature. And if they have a temperature, they won't be allowed in the store, they won't be allowed in the office. And that practice is becoming commonplace. It's becoming accepted. I'm glad that it is. It is a good public health practice. And there have been very few, certainly that I've seen, there have been very few complaints uh, registered as regards invasion of privacy or invasion of uh, civil rights, etc. I'm very glad to see that the American public has gone along with the importance of public temperature taking and identification of potential COVID-19 carriers. But the privacy trade-off is controversial, and the concerns for privacy may come to the fore as we as COVID-19 fades into the background. Of course, the ownership and potential misuse of such medical metadata is rife with risk. While there has been a tension for a long time between the use of personal data and privacy, and that tension has existed long before the pandemic, this is one of those trends, especially with the use of medical data, which has controversially accelerated and will continue to unfold. For instance, it's your personal information and medical data. However, it's being used by your employer, the place where you're having dinner, the shop, the restaurant. Once they have taken your personal medical data, do you continue to own it and control it? Do they continue to own it and control it? And if they do, how do they use it and how do they protect your privacy? Those issues are yet to be worked out and they're still open at this point. Let us come back to real estate for a moment. Both commercial and residential real estate will face some significant changes post-COVID-19. We think of the many high-rise office buildings and apartment buildings built here in San Francisco in the last 20 years, especially in the south of market area, where tech companies have flocked from Silicon Valley up to San Francisco and have moved into these 30, 40, 50, 60-story high-rises 
in the south of market area. And all of those high rises and access to the upper floors in those high rises is through a limited number of elevators. The elevators and the elevator banks in those buildings, and there are millions of square feet of new high-rise office space, condominiums, and apartments in San Francisco and many other American cities. But the upper floors in those buildings and in pre-existing high-rises have a limited number of elevators. The elevator and elevator banks represent a design choke point, which will limit speedy access to your office or your apartment. The protocols, as I mentioned earlier, are yet to be devised as to how they will work, how many people may enter the elevator, will the elevator not be operational if there's more than a certain number of people in it, all of those elements of access and ready access to the higher floors and to your office and your apartment and your condominium, those protocols are yet to be worked out. But the days of being crammed into an elevator like sardines are behind us. So new protocols are coming. Stay tuned. And if the work from home trend accelerates, Will residential real estate be valued and taxed at higher rates? For instance, if 10% of your home and 10% or more of the square footage of your home is dedicated for your home office to your home office, will that part of your house be taxed at a higher rate, at a commercial real estate rate? Will your employer pay some kind of a uh, a rent, a nominal rent for you to use that space. Those are protocols and business decisions that are yet to be considered and to be worked out. So working from home opens as many questions as, as it answers. And particularly in the field of regulation, jurisdiction, and real estate law. Let's take a moment and focus on universities. Private universities in this country are charging upwards of $60,000 a year in room board and tuition. And quite frankly, $60,000 a year to attend online lectures, that's not going to fly. Many of those online lectures from the leading professors at the, those universities are already featured on YouTube for free. So how on earth can they, university administrators, they, justify a $60,000 a year tuition for online lectures, which are already on YouTube or for free? Perhaps at some of the big name private universities, the Harvards, the Yales, the Browns, the Stanfords, maybe they'll be able to get away with it there. But some of the second tier but quite expensive privately held universities, that uh, high tuition freight for online lectures and online seminars, that's not going to fly. So universities are going to be pressured to reduce their tuitions as a result of those practices. 
So what began as a process, as a podcast focused on working from home, which on its face seems to be as simple as motherhood and apple pie, it's that kind of a simple concept. It turns out to be much more nuanced and complex and reaching into areas that at first you wouldn't have thought would be affected by working from home. So working from home begs a lot of questions that have not yet been addressed. So it is still a work in progress. And just as after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, we saw a mass outflow of corporate tenants from lower Manhattan and midtown Manhattan for the suburbs in New Jersey and Connecticut, Long Island, and Westchester County, that was reversed, that flow was reversed by the late 2000s when many of those companies came flooding back to Manhattan. So the ebb and flow of working from home, working downtown, that may also be an ebb and flow situation similar to the 9-11 experience in Manhattan. So remote Totopia has some dystopian features as well as some utopian aspects also. Returning to work and reopening of American society and the American economy is a lot more complex than we would have believed, but at least we have begun the long and arduous process to get back to where we were on March 15th, 2020. The sources for today's podcast include Cushman and Wakefield, the Six Feet Office, Cognizance Center for the Future of Work, Gallup.com, and the New York Times. Thank you for listening to the San Francisco Experience. This has been your host, Jim Herlihy, signing off from San Francisco, America's favorite city.